I recently went to a board game night and got introduced to a variety of games I'd always seen around but never actually played before. Okay, so the medium-sized Jenga blocks, they weren't new, but I can't recall ever playing Tenzi before, a game where you roll up to 10 dice and try to get specific numbers with each roll. Ditto for Blockus, a multiplayer Tetris-esque game that reinforced the belief that I'm terrible at planning ahead in board games. And likewise with Five Crowns, a card game that everyone else seemed to be good at while I flailed away hopelessly with useless hand after useless hand. It's like the one time I tried playing poker before deciding, you know what? I don't need to wear sunglasses indoors. I'm okay with skipping this. I even witnessed code names being played with pictures instead of words. What in the photographical madness is going on? The moral of this story is that there are a ton of tabletop activities out there. And if you've ever thought, nah, I don't think these kinds of games are for me, it's possible you haven't tried the right one yet. Maybe instead of a board game, you'd do better with a brain teaser or puzzle. That's the genius behind the Austin-based company Project Genius, which makes brain teasers and puzzles designed to get your mind stimulated. Their office sounds exactly like my own home, too, with creative ideas, dogs, bad jokes, and spontaneous pun-offs. The company is also women-owned and an active member of the Austin Autism Council. One of those owners is Brandy Pinsker, who founded the company and serves as CEO. Brandy's talking about how she got into this world, what the creative process is like in making puzzles and brain teasers, and how to build more diverse and inclusive workplaces for everyone. I'm Joey Held, this is Good People, Cool Things, and here's my conversation with Brandy Pinsker of Project Genius. To kick things off, can you give us your name and your elevator pitch, and also the type of elevator that we're riding on? My name is Brandy Pinsker, and I run a company called Project Genius, and we make brain teasers, brain games, and puzzles for all ages. Excellent. And have you always loved puzzles? And games like do it was this something you did growing up or is it kind of more of a recent development in life um i would say i've always loved games i think puzzles came later um i've always loved games because i love the way that they create a social opportunity for everyone um and i've worked in the game industry my entire adult life i was a buyer for a chain of game and toy stores for about 10 years before i started project genius and so I would say the puzzles didn't come around until I started Project Genius, but I I do love them and I love being in this category. Was there a game when you were a buyer that, I guess like a nationally recognized game that you'd be surprised was was being ordered a lot? I was always surprised by how well licensed games could sell, um, which I know probably sounds funny now, but... um, yeah, you know, they didn't have to have a lot of content to them or a lot of gameplay value. And I, I think I was always just surprised at how quickly they got scooped up over games that took a lot of thought and really did have a lot of value to them. Um, and those were always a lot harder to sell, I think. I'm thinking back to my childhood and when, like, we probably had, I don't know, eight or nine different Monopoly versions where it would be like... <laughs> Either, either licensed or I remember we had an Alaska Monopoly. Yeah. And just taking a family trip to it. And then I was like, oh, like Glacier, Glacier Bay. Right. It's exactly uh, the same game. It, it's so funny that you mentioned Monopoly too, because um, I remember working in our stores one time and you know, we, we did sell all the licensed Monopolies, but I remember somebody coming up and buying like 
five or 10 of them. And I asked like, what are you going to do with all these different types of monopolies? And he said, oh, I'm a collector. I have a warehouse where I store these and I have over 500 now. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. Amazing that there's even 500. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess that's the part that should have shocked me. I remember one time house hunting, we went into a garage at, uh -huh. at this house and they just had like 30 pinball machines and arcade, uh, I guess also machines, arcade cabinets. That's the word I'm looking oh. for. And I was like, does this come with the house? <laughs> because <laughs> I wasn't interested prior to this, but now I think I might be. <laughs> yeah, that house definitely has a story, right? Yes. Yes. Sadly, yeah. they did not come with the house though. So did you buy the house? Bad. No, not that one. But did buy a, a house eventually and have one arcade cabinet and probably about 50 board games. So it's a good yeah. good collection of stuff. Are you a regular gamer? I'd say not so much. It's definitely, to go back to what you were saying, it's, it's a social opportunity for everyone. I, I find I'm bringing board games to a lot of events and mm. at you know, if I'm hosting a gathering here, usually a game or two will come out. I, I, a previous guest on this podcast, I'll give him a shout out, Brian Hirsch, who is the creator of games like Outburst and Taboo, uh -huh. had recently made a game that's called Boom Again that's supposed to be primarily for boomers, which is uh -huh. not my generation. <laughs> I, but I was like, you know what? My parents taught me well. That game I thought was very difficult, but still in a fun, engaging way of like, we probably only knew about 20% of the answers, but because it's kind of a team sort of, you know, effort, one person might say something that spurs an answer for someone else. And so I, that's, I'd say what more of my gaming is, which it's probably not groundbreaking that I play yeah. board games with multiple people instead of just by myself. <laughs> I think it can be a really good way to break the ice, right? Especially if you're, um, getting together with a group that has you know, multiple generations um, or people that you don't know very well. It's a great, you know, it gives somebody something to gather around and uh, you know, they can be conversation starters. So. So aside from the nice social aspect of games and puzzles and whatnot, we'll just categorize them all as, as brain teasers generally, yeah. which I know is a very, very big oversimplification, but what makes for a good brain teaser? I think that a good brain teaser is, has a really simple objective to it. So I don't think that people like to spend a lot of time understanding how it works. I think the, the joy in a brain teaser is figuring out how to solve it. And so, um, yeah, I think a really simple objective is really important. People need to be able to understand it in the first 20 or 30 seconds. Um, but then after that, I actually think that brain teasers that have longer solve times are more enjoyable. Um, you know, most of our puzzles sell for 15 to $20. And if you bought it, if you spent $15 on a puzzle and you solved it in five minutes, I don't think you're feeling very satisfied, <laughs> right? Um, but I think that, you know, if you, I do think you have to be able to make some progress with it, right? If you're just looking at this thing and you can't get even step one done, that's no fun. People like that end up going and just Googling the solution and that's not very satisfying. So I think that you need to be able to make some progress fairly quickly. Um, we sell a puzzle called Chroma Cube 
and it's a logic puzzle. So if you ever remember doing those puzzles when you were in I don't know, high school or maybe college where you get clues and you have to figure out how things fit together. So it's like, you know, Joey can't sit by Brandy and Brandy's sitting two seats away from Jeff and so on, right? And you've got to figure out what position everyone's in. Um, we sell a logic puzzle called Chroma Cube that follows that format. And we do a lot of end consumer shows where I get to teach this game to people. And one of the first things that someone will tell me at a consumer show, especially adults, is I'm not very good at puzzles. And they literally like put their hands up and back away <laughs> they're because they're, they're so afraid of looking stupid, right? Because they can't do this brain teaser. But the first puzzle in Chroma Cube is fairly simple. And I always say like, I've never met a person who can't solve the very first puzzle in this game. We have 25 puzzles total. They get increasingly more difficult, but I love watching when somebody, you know, we finally talk them into it. They solve this first puzzle. They do it in about a minute. Everybody gets it right. Uh, and they feel really encouraged after that to move on to the next one. And so I, I think that, you know, to get back to your question, a good brain teaser stair steps you in like that, because after they feel successful with that first puzzle, they sort of surprise themselves. Right. And they'll say, oh, well, let me see puzzle number two now. And, you know, just, it just very gradually gets a little harder and they may end up bumping into a puzzle that they can't solve eventually. Uh, but the confidence that you see from them solving those first few is, is really fun to watch. Um, and so, yeah, I think a good brain teaser is set up in such a way that it's more for the masses and not just for, you know, my friend who's a computer programmer and is really good at this stuff. And those puzzles are certainly great and they do exist. And that's, you know, for, for certain people, for a smaller audience, those are great puzzles. But I think the puzzles that we love to make and enjoy selling are the types of puzzles that everybody can have a stab at. Yeah, I like that. I was thinking too, an element that I've seen in some board games is obviously uh, a clock of some sort, whether, you know, it's a, an hourglass or a timer with an annoying uh, dull tone to it the entire time. And then a giant buzzer goes off. And I was just, I was just thinking of the, from like an accessibility standpoint, like that makes me so nervous when I'm playing mm -hmm. a board game or a puzzle, like the, the franticness of it. But I was thinking in video games for whatever reason i'm like on board if there's a if it's like yeah. hey you have to get out of this room in 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever and it's so interesting to me that it's like maybe it's just because like a video game i'm playing it by myself so i'm just like ah if i you know if i don't make this or like if i get all all nervous it's fine uh -huh. but then in a social setting i'm just like this is panic inducing i want to take my time <laughs> as i make my next move that's true. Well, maybe maybe that um, timer is getting your adrenaline going and actually making you better, right? Um, and if you're in a social setting and they've got that timer on, I think it's probably giving your your friends the assurance that you can't just sit there and think about your move forever. They're going to get a turn. Yes, that's true. Because then the, the converse is when... <laughs> I'm thinking of one friend in particular when I was playing Magic the Gathering back in the day in middle school and high school. And he'd 
he'd take like half an hour every turn and I'm oh, just like, brutal. you know what, I'll just tap out. You can just win. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I don't think that that's a very good, um, component of gameplay when some, if there's an opportunity for somebody to sit there and think about their turn forever and everybody else is just, you know, I don't know, after a minute I'm scrolling Facebook or Instagram, I'm not watching anymore. Uh, <laughs> and, and then they're not involved, right? And that's not very social. And so I think that, yeah, I don't love games that are set up like that. We used to play, um, so I have a son with autism and I know that we're going to talk about autism later in the podcast, but we play a lot of board games with him because it's a great way to get him focused and get him in a social setting that he doesn't usually like to be in. Um, but we used to play a lot of Scrabble with him and it was great because it would increase his vocabulary and, um, and he was good at it. Um, and then, but my husband who won't throw the game for him and he won't let him win would like be sitting there thinking about his move for five minutes. And my son would always say, you know, what is Jeff doing? And like, he's thinking about his move. And, and so, um, and, and, and we eventually moved on from Scrabble to Bananagrams. Have you ever played Bananagrams? Yes. Love Bananagrams. Yeah, it's a great game. And I think it took what's great about Scrabble, which is the wordplay, and took out the one element that's pretty boring about Scrabble, which is waiting for your turn. Um, and now we play Bananagrams every night. Amazing. I love yelling peel. That's a weird, yeah, weird right. satisfaction to do. <laughs> right. It really is. <laughs> it's really cute. So, um, but yeah, I think that they did a great job of taking a classic game that everyone recognizes um, and taking out the part that is maybe not so much fun. You have a new game through Project Genius that's called Headspin, which I have not gotten a chance to play, but just looking at it, it features a lot of color. It features fidget spinners. What can people expect when they play it? People can expect that this is a good game for families. Um, one of my favorite things about Headspin is that I think it's a great game for parents to play with their kids. I feel like most games have um, a, fairy, a fairly narrow uh, age range to them, right? Like this is a game that's for eight to 12 or, you know, 12 and up, or, you know, this is a game that you would like to play with your adult friends. Um, and then whenever you get into games where parents are playing against kids, you're typically put in a situation where you have to throw the game in order for kids to stay interested. So back to my previous Scrabble example, my husband never threw the game. And as a result, my son has never won Scrabble. And I'm shocked <laughs> that he remains interested in this game. <laughs> um, and that's not true on Headspin. So, you know, the way it plays is you get these cards that are, they're puzzly in nature, but they're super simple puzzles. So again, these are puzzles that absolutely nobody could fail at. It's just a matter of speed. So you're racing to solve them. Um, and then you put your answer on these fidget spinners. And the reason I think this works so well for parents versus kids is that parents are usually faster at solving these puzzles in their head. But when it comes time to put that answer on those fidget spinners, kids are faster, right? They're, they're, they've got better hand-eye coordination, probably from all of those video games that they play all day long. Um, and so those two components really balance each other out. So anyone can win the game. And it's not, um, you know, I think parents can stay engaged and not have to throw the game for their kids to win. And I think you know, kids know when you're throwing the game. Right. So if they beat you, 
fair and square. I think that feels good to them. Yeah, I think so too. I, I have occasionally had to throw a game with children and sure. I'm yeah. so bad at it. I can't make it convincing <laughs> at all. Yeah, exactly. And they know it, right? But I think, you know, when they legitimately beat you, that feels really good to them. Um, and then, you know, when you're not playing the game, I think kids also just love to play with these fidget spinners that we put in there. So that's a nice little bonus. <laughs> they are very soothing. <laughs> yeah, they are. Now, you've got several games in the Project Genius portfolio, but I always like hearing about some of the failures, some of the horror stories. Has there been a game prototype or, or design or something where you were like, yes, this is going to be great. And then as you got further into either just the idea or even started developing it, you, you just thought, no, this is not a fun game. <laughs> oh my God. It feels like we ha that happens to us every week, but I would say that our, yeah, I think our biggest horror story was um, last year we worked on this music game called off the record and we, we concepted out the gameplay, we tested it ourselves, and it was sort of like um, music game meets puzzles. And as, you know, in the office, it was, we were the perfect demographic to test this out. We all love puzzles, we're fairly into music, and we have people who are from multiple generations. And so we, we you know, we concepted the gameplay, we tested it out, we loved it, and we spent tons of time making the most beautiful packaging I think we've ever made. It was gorgeous. It had this um, record player on the front with a record that actually would spin. And uh, it was just, it was the, some of the best packaging I think that we've ever made. And I think we probably spent 10% of our time on the gameplay and 90% of our time making that package. <laughs> and then we took it out to test play it and show it to some of our buyers. And it turned out it was too hard. And there was um, not a big... Um, that's what I'm looking for. There wasn't a big cross-section between people who loved music games and people who wanted to do a puzzle, which in hindsight makes a ton of sense. Uh, but at the time, like we, you know, we, we just had these blinders on and could not, uh, you know, we, we just were not paying attention to the gameplay versus the packaging. So uh, yeah, that was a lot of wasted money and a big lesson learned. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I think... You know, it's interesting too because we did that on the heels of Headspin, and uh, when I first did Headspin, I wrote the cards, and then the idea was to pair two puzzles together. So those cards are a really easy puzzle, and then the spinners that we're using as fidget spinners to put the answers on had sort of like a fifteen. Do you remember what a fifteen puzzle is? Yes. Yeah, those little sliding puzzles, right? So there was like a fifteen puzzle component to those fidget spinners. So you had sort of two easy puzzles that you had to do in one turn. And as we play tested it, what we learned is that a lot of people had never solved a 15 puzzle and didn't recognize that gameplay, uh, which is something that we were really counting on. Um, and so the person who was play testing it for us came back and said, you know, just take the puzzle element out of it and just use this as something to put your answers on. And we were so tied to our original idea that it probably took us a couple of months of playtesting before we actually took that advice because we were just, you know, we were just being so precious about our own idea. And I think that 
as we get in, you know, we started out doing puzzles and now we're trying to do more games. And as we're doing more games, we're really learning how to listen to feedback, which, you know, which can be hard. You've got an idea, you think it's a great idea, and then you've got to really calm down, get out your pencil and start listening and taking notes. Uh, and so I would say that that's been a little bit of a learning curve for us. You mentioned your play tester. Do you have the same one for every game or do you have kind of a, a well of folks you can go to? Um, there are services out there that you can pay for to do play testing for you. So um, if we're doing a game, we'll actually go pay a company to go out and do play testing and give us feedback. And we use the same company for that. Um, and then sometimes we'll do it informally. Uh, we'll set up sessions over at Vigilante. Are you familiar with Vigilante? Do you ever go there? It's a gaming cafe in Austin. I feel like I've been there once. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes we'll like, we'll go rent their secret room and set up shop in there and invite some, some people over from meetup groups to come in and play test for us. But it's, I think it's pretty hard to find a good play test group. Um, and it's, I also think it's really hard to get, objective feedback from people especially if they know that the inventor is in the room so you know you sort of have to lie at the beginning and say like hey we didn't invent this game we're just testing it or um or you know just just make them comfortable giving you feedback because they typically i think want to flatter the person who invented it so (laughs) yeah you gotta get like a room full of larry davids in there who are just you need brutal, yeah, you need brutal feedback, right? Because you know, end consumers aren't going to soften the blow at all. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing Project Genius for about a decade and a half now. So what's something that surprised you about running a business? Mm, like everything about running a business surprises <laughs> me. Um, I, th- I think, you know, I think what surprised me the most about running a business is uh, how hard it is to manage people. Um, I wish that, you know, I got into this business as a result of just like working in the industry. And then I met somebody in Amsterdam who had developed a line of brain teasers and puzzles and wanted to come to the U.S. And so, you know, we just set up shop here together. And I really intended to run this as just a, kind of a solo project, you know, me and maybe at most one other person who was my sister. And I just thought, you know, we never want to have any employees. It's just going to be the two of us. And we're never going to grow any bigger than the two of us can manage. Um, but that wasn't the case, right? We grew and it's, it's really hard to, to say no to new business and to not keep growing the company. And so as we, you know, we hired employees and it never occurred to me that this is a skill that I needed to develop before I hired employees to, you know, to learn how to manage people and to learn how to lead a team. Um, and so I, I think the biggest surprise is like how much of a skill set that is and how important it is early on before you start managing people to go take a class in management, go hire a management coach and decide how you're going to do this versus you know, learning as you go. Um, so yeah, I think that was probably my biggest surprise is just, you know, how how difficult it can be to lead teams and you know, to be a good manager to people and to create a culture where everyone's enjoying their job and doing their best work. Um, you know, that that stuff takes takes time. And I I think when we first started hiring people, I really felt like you know, we can 
we can run a business. And as long as we're succeeding, everyone's going to enjoy doing what we're doing. Um, and that's not the case, right? You really need to, I think when you hire someone, you've got to carve hours out of your week to decide how you're going to do this and how you're going to be good at it. I, I guess to follow up on that, have you learned something either from a management class or uh, you know, other kind of resource like that, or even just in your own managing of people that you think more people who are in manager position should know? But I think that the most valuable thing that I've learned as a manager is just how important it is to be on the same side of things as your employer, as, as your employee, right? You know, we are doing this as a team. There's no me against you. Whatever we're working on, we're working on this together. And to really try to get in there and to see their point of view. Um, and, and, you know, and just how important it is to pay attention to how, how well everyone is getting along as a team um, and to fix problems really early if that's not working. Um, and, you know, I think something that I worked really hard on that, that is important is to give people feedback often and honest. It's not something that I really, I don't really like giving people negative feedback. And I think as a result, I would just skirt the issue and I would, I would avoid doing that. Um, but the very first management coach I worked with, I think every session she would say to me, uh, you know, clear as clear as kind, right? So tell people when they're doing something wrong, they appreciate the feedback. They would much rather have that feedback from you uh, than to keep doing something wrong. And so, yeah, I think giving people honest feedback, even if it's not what they want to hear is really important. I like that. And to not, we talk about this a lot at our company too, of not giving the shit sandwich uh, or, <laughs> or, or the compliment sandwich. I'm sorry. It's probably the more uh, PG way to say it. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. So you, you think that the compliment sandwiches, people can see it coming. I, I think it either detracts from the compliments or from the actual feedback, because then the people mm -hmm. will either hear, hey, this is, I've done this well, and that's it. And, or I'm only focused on the negative, and I'm going to make it a bigger issue than it really is. Yeah, that's true. And I think it also depends on the person, right? I mean, one of the things that um, that we did, we started this a couple of years ago, and I really love it. But we all sat down and we wrote personal user manuals. Have you ever heard of doing this before? No. It's great. So you basically go in and you answer a set of questions about um, how how you work with other people, how you like to receive feedback how you like to give feedback, what, um, you know, what are your most productive hours of the day? And so there's just a list of questions that you go in and you answer about yourself. And then we shared it as a group. And that way you start to learn how your other team members work well in a group. So you might say something like, oh, you know what? I'm really focused in the morning and don't like any chit chat until after one o'clock in the afternoon. And then everyone knows that if they want to get the best out of you, they're not interrupting as to the best of their ability. They're not interrupting you in the morning. And if they've got questions for you, they don't bring them in until the afternoon because they know that you're really focused in the morning. Um, you know, if I have to give one of my employees difficult feedback, I'll first go and I'll read their personal user manual and see that, okay, well, you know, so-and-so really needs to understand the why behind something or, you know, maybe a different employee 
needs to hear a compliment before they hear the bad news. Maybe they like the compliment sandwich. Um, and so, you know, the I, I don't think that the idea is that you're always going to approach somebody exactly as they've laid out in this user manual. But I think when you start to get stuck with people, it gives you some insight into how to get around that. And I think we also all learned a lot about ourselves in the process. Even if I was like going in and filling out this questionnaire that we all then later like shared with each other, it was like, oh, you know, how do I like to receive feedback or, you know, what are my most productive times of the day? It was something I'd really never thought about. And so I think that in addition to learning a lot about ourselves, we learned a lot about each other and it gave us, you know, we carved out an hour to go through and share this and it was great. And we do it with new employees too. So if we have someone new starting uh, as part of their onboarding process, they have to go out and read everyone else's user manuals. They've got to fill out their own. And then we do another meeting and we have the conversation and it gives everyone a chance to update theirs. If they've learned something about themselves between the last time they filled it out and now, then they can, you know, they can make those updates and share those insights. It's been great. I like that. I like that. We have a similar ish type of thing where it's kind of like a get to know you questionnaire. And it, I'd say probably about 25 to 30% is like that. <laughs> like a nice creative exercise for everyone too. Yeah, that's great. You're also an active member in the Austin autism community. And you mentioned your son has autism. So I assume that's a, a big reason for why you got involved in the first place. But how have you worked with organizations and people within that community to help grow the Project Genius brand? Yeah. So autism is not something I selected. It selected me. Uh, My son was diagnosed when he was two. And one of the things that's really, I think, prominent in the autism community is that there are just a lot of services and a lot of institutions that don't exist yet. And so parents end up building the things that their kids need. And that's what I've done, you know, my son's 18 now, and I've ended up doing that his entire life. You know, it's like there's not a social program that takes kids like Eli who are on the spectrum or who have any specific need. And so you go and you create that group, you create that school, you create that thing. Um, and that's what's happened as he's, you know, as he's turned 18 and he's going to age out of high school. One of the things that I realized, and you know, of course I could see this coming for a long time is that once high school is over, nothing exists for these kids. You know, other kids go off, they go to college, your job as a parent is, you know, for the most part done, but not only are these kids not leaving their parents' houses, but they're not going to college, they're not getting jobs. And so they are essentially, you know, living the life of a retired person right after they're done with high school. And they don't have access to, you know, high school is their social world. It's where they get their their therapy, their education, all of this stuff. And it just disappears on graduation day. And so um, you know, we've been thinking for a long time, you know, what's, what's this kid going to do whenever he turns 18? And so uh, I'm lucky that we run our own warehouse and we started to create jobs for adults on the spectrum. We um, we've tested this out a couple of times, once with Georgetown ISD, and then again on our own, just hiring kids who have autism to come in and work in our warehouse and help us pick orders, um, help us price stuff, 
just, you know, wherever we think that we can create a job that's easy to learn and repetitive uh, where, and where we can pretty easily supervise them. And so we, you know, my son was 18 last summer and he's still in high school right now. He's in his last year of high school this year. But we tested it last summer with three kids. It was my son and two other kids. And it was great. We had them come in and pick orders for us and um, do a handful of tasks. And it went really well. And I realized that the hardest part was really like finding these kids and making sure we had the right fit and then finding a job coach. And so we started working with a company called Greenleaf here in Austin. And what they do is 18 plus transition. So they take kids in to their school and they do some classroom training, some job skills training, and then they partner with people like Project Genius to go on site and work for a couple of hours to get some like real world job experience. And so we sort of, you know, we sort of do a hybrid situation. I've got a couple of kids that I've hired directly because I know their parents and they come in and do some work for us. And then we have Greenleaf come in a couple of days a week and bring their kids in so that we can be a job training site for them. And, you know, the nice thing about working with someone like Greenleaf is we don't even have to think about it, right? We've set the work up and they come in with their own job coaches. They've already got the students enrolled. So they're really taking on that recruitment and supervision role. And, you know, we're still a small company. If Project Genius really had to invest in that and think about that and hire a full-time employee, I'm not sure it's something that we would be able to do. But what we can do is make work available for someone like Greenleaf to come in and do it. And so I, I think as a result of working with Greenleaf, you know, we have 12 kids coming in where we might have had two kids coming in before. And I think it just makes it to where we can serve a larger portion of the population. Maybe that ties in nicely with a question you wish you were asked more frequently, which is how can businesses include adults with autism in their workforce? Oh my gosh. How long do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say, I I do think that working with somebody like Greenleaf or like Bloom Consulting does the same thing, right? They help kids with autism find jobs. Um, But one of the ways that we've done it when we hire kids directly or really the way that we're planning to do it this summer, because we uh, we don't get to work with Greenleaf over the summer. But um, we've found a business model that's not disruptive to our regular business. So a lot of one of the things that I noticed when we first started doing this is that I would let somebody with autism come in to to do a job and they would bring with them a therapist. It was like one kid making you know, $10 an hour and they would bring a therapist with them that I knew was getting paid probably, I don't know, 40 to $60 an hour just to come in and supervise that one kid when really they didn't need that much supervision, right? They could all work. All of these kids were probably capable of working with a three to one ratio, but that would require, you know, project genius to coordinate that. And so I just thought this is so wasteful. This isn't like, this is not sustainable. So what we would like to do is eventually bring in a job coach so that these kids can have a three to one. And for us, if we're paying that job coach and those three kids are doing this as job training or an internship, that's kind of a wash for the company in terms of 
um, in terms of our budget. And you know, the kids are getting the job training and they're getting something to do with their day that's productive and that's hopefully leading to either full-time paid employment or you know, for some of these parents, this is just the, the programming works for them. And that's, that's my situation, right? So with my son, I need him to be somewhere during the day that's supervised and where he's gaining skills. And so what we're trying to do and what I think other companies could do is set up situations like this so that the ratio of job coach to kid is making it budget neutral for them. And these kids are still getting the right amount of supervision and somewhere to be during the day. I love it. I love it. All right, Brandy, you're almost off the hook here. But we always like to wrap up with a top three. What are your top three board games? All right. I don't think this will be any surprise to you. Bananagrams is a favorite. <laughs> we play it every night. And on the nights when we're not playing Bananagrams, we're playing Rummy Cube, um, which we play because my son loves math. And he's incredibly good at this. And again, he can. we're not throwing the game. He can beat us at this. Um, and then Headspin, of course. Fantastic. That's a good good mix. Good mix of games. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Brandy, this was so much fun. I feel inspired. Like I want to go create something now after this and maybe maybe play a few games too. Invite some people over. We'll have, we'll have a nice game night. If people want to learn more about you and Project Genius, maybe pick up one or all of the games you offer. Where can they find you? Uh, projectgeniusinc.com lovely well, thank you again for taking the time to chat this is awesome yep it's a great great day for a game night it's cloudy out there so enjoy and of course we have to end with a corny joke as Let's we always it. do I secretly took my friend's board game from his house he doesn't have a clue ah uh, get out <laughs> it's really good I love it Good People, Cool Things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you were a fan of this episode, go ahead and hit that follow button. That helps more people hear the show. You can send me a message, joey at goodpeoplecoolthings.com. Thank you to all of the guests who have been on Good People, Cool Things. You can check out all the old episodes via goodpeoplecoolthings.com. As always, thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.